you pray with me for a moment? Lord God, I have one prayer this morning, and I hope that everybody in the room can pray it with me. Help me to find my all in you. Amen. Jesus works and we respond. That's the rhythm of the Christian life. It's the rhythm of the scriptures. God initiates, we respond in faith. Jesus works, the church responds with love for him and service to him. We're spending nine weeks unpacking what our response to Jesus looks like. We're using these three categories on the screen behind me, changed, known, sent. And uh, we're on week number six right now. Three weeks will come in January after a break at Christmas time, changed because of who Jesus is and all that he's done for us. We commit ourselves to pursuing life-changing encounters with God and his grace. What does it mean to be known in response to Jesus and who he is? We want to pursue authentic and caring relationships sent. Because of all that Jesus has done, we want to pursue sacrificial service to our neighbors, our culture, our world. These are three ways of naming What a response, a mature, wholehearted, whole soul, whole person response to Jesus might look like. We're right now focusing on what it means to be known. A couple weeks ago we said this involves connecting to each other. We're committing to connect to each other with warmth and safety and vulnerability. Last week we saw, hey, we can't just connect to each other on this scale with hundreds of people in a room. We're going to have to, we're going to have to, Commit to growing in small groups, forming more intimate relationships where we can spur each other on to spiritual growth and maturity. Today, we want to say, hey, pursuing authentic and caring relationships because of who Jesus is, it means that we've got to care for one another in times of need. We're about to read from Acts chapter 9, a story from the earliest days of the Christian church. And we're going to hear how people are experiencing all kinds of needs. And we're going to hear how the Apostle Peter takes care of people who are experiencing need. We're going to hear about a woman named Tabitha. It's one of her names. You'll hear her other name as well. How she's caring for people in need. But if we focus just on those two people, we will run the risk of missing the most important character in the story. So listen as... Our elder, Jim Work, comes and reads for us from Acts chapter 9. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please, come to us without delay, 
So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made them while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So uh, our staff has an annual retreat. We uh, like to be serious, ask questions about what God is calling us to. How is Jesus at work among us? How can we foster that, further that? But we also like to play. So this year, for the first time, we went to a place called Top Golf. Ever been to Top Golf? Anybody? Like you know, you don't have to be a golfer to go there. You're hitting golf balls uh, at these targets that are kind of randomly placed, and and sometimes you just get lucky and score a lot of points, and you didn't know that it was triple point time, and and all of that. And um, so even if you're not really good, you got a chance at this thing, right? And so um, some of our high school students thought it would be fun, and I agreed to have a little friendly wager. And the deal was that if I lost, I would have to preach wearing a tie, a a necktie today. And if I won, wear a bow tie. Right? And here I am, wearing a bow tie. You know? Now, I have to say it was close. We agreed that um, I I had to finish... Uh, I had to beat half of the staff, right? So I needed to finish sixth or better. And um, things got pretty close because Paula Hunt was the last one to go. I was going to close out the competition. And she scored enough points to put me firmly in seventh place. Seventh place. I had four more balls to hit, and I needed to score 16 points. And I hit the first one and scored like 10 points. Yes. I hit the next one. Not so good. Two points. Mm. But I got two hits left. I only need to score four points. What could go wrong? What could go wrong? Well, you could shank the first ball into the next county <laughs> and score zero points. And then, feeling the pressure of having one last ball to hit, you could score zero points with that one, too. <laughs> and you could finish... In seventh place, and then what could go wrong is Becca Heck could find the most hideous golf-related tie (laughs) on the whole planet. And then what could go wrong? It only takes you five tries to tie the thing. And then what could go wrong is you get a stinking professional photographer in the room... The only time in the past decade you've been caught with one of these things around your neck. (sighs) What could go wrong? So, 
Let it be known, I'm a man of my word. I keep my promise. They're worth them. No. There were some definite scoring irregularities. And I could have filed a protest, but you know, I got to take my lumps. I choked when it counted. What could go wrong? Well, that's where we're going to start today's sermon, actually. You're going to ask that question, what could go wrong? What has gone wrong? What can put it right? Okay, so try to ignore this thing. And uh, if I start to look a little woozy, Jim, can you come catch me? Because I'm, it's going to cut off the circulation to my head at some point, I'm sure. Um, yeah, what could go wrong? So reading, reading this scripture passage and hearing this message that Jesus calls us to care for each other in times of need, how could that go wrong? Well, the first way it could go wrong is you could just say, you know what, I'm bored. Because saying that, saying that Christians ought to care for each other in times of need, that's like the equivalent of saying, be nice. And it's nice to be nice, so be nice. And why do we need to hear that? Well, as we proceed through uh, the message this morning, we'll hear that there's far more at stake than just be nice. So stay tuned. There's another way it could go wrong, and it could be, I'm, I'm not bored, I'm angry. When a pastor says that Christians ought to care for each other in times of need, maybe the first thing you think of is, the church hasn't always cared for me in my times of need. And it still hurts. And it makes me a little mad to hear you say that. So what I want to say to you is, if you've never heard it before, I am sorry. If if you're still hurting because of ways that this church or some other church has failed to take care of you in the moment when you most needed us, I'm sorry. One of the reasons I'm preaching this sermon today is because the leaders of this church have said, we aren't especially good at doing this. We feel like we can do this better. We need to grow, and it needs to start with us, the elders and pastors of the church. So we're not hearing this message this morning because we assume we're already getting this right. We're actually wanting Jesus to call us to something greater than what we would accomplish left to ourselves. He works and we respond. All right, there's another group of people in the room who aren't saying, I'm bored or I'm angry. They're saying, you know, I'm I'm skeptical. Look, this whole thing is about miracles, healing a man named Aeneas, raising this woman named Tabitha. In Greek, it's Dorcas. I'm going to keep calling her Tabitha. Um, Raising her back to life after she died. And you have this sense that It's hard for me to take that seriously. Should I really affirm that miracles like this happen? Let's unpack that for just a moment. It's an argument that goes a bit like this, I think. It starts like this. People who value science and history shouldn't accept miracles as true. I don't think that's correct, but it's common for people to think this way. To think that, hey, if, if I'm a rational thinking person and I take seriously the training I've received in these other disciplines, 
then it would be hard for me to wrap my brain around the fact that miracles could be true. And here's an assumption that goes with that one. The assumption is believing true things is better than believing false things. Now, this one I agree with. Yes, absolutely. Better to believe what's true than to believe what's false. So these two assumptions often go hand in hand, right? I'm not sure if I value these tools for discovering truth, science and history, that that I should then affirm the reality of miracles because that might put me at risk of believing something that's not true. What I want us to see for just a moment, okay, we cannot wrestle the whole question of the, the validity of miracles and the truthfulness of Scripture down to the ground in this one morning, but we can make at least this point. Science and history are not good tools for asking what is good and what is bad and how do we know if something is better. Science and history are great tools for asking and answering certain kinds of questions. But the methods of science and history cannot ever tell you that it is good to believe true things. The methods of science and history cannot ever tell you that it is bad to believe false things. They could describe the consequences of what happens when false things are believed, but they can't say that that is bad. Science and history aren't good tools for asking if one of these is better than the other. So, if you are trying to live out this life that says, I value science and history, therefore I'm never going to affirm anything that, that transcends the boundaries of science and history, you can't do it. Because if you're going to say, one of the reasons I value science and history is because I I like believing true things more than false things, then you already have to assume that there's some reality outside the boundaries of science and history to tell you that believing good things is good, believing true things is good, believing bad things is bad, believing false things is bad, believing the true is better than believing the false. There has to be something that transcends those tools in order to make the tools good or bad. That makes sense? Now, what that means is that a person who says, I value science and history because I think it's good to believe true things, that person is already open to the possibility of something true outside the bounds of science and history. So to be a good scientist and a good historian, you've actually got to be open to the possibility that there's a reality bigger than science and history. And if you're open to that possibility, then it's not inconsistent to be open to the possibility that there's a God who transcends the boundaries of science and history. It's not incompatible with your valuing of science and history to say, you know what? If that God transcends those boundaries, then it's possible that he does things that are outside those boundaries, things that we call miracles. Now, I am not pretending that in just a few moments, with a few sentences, I've answered all the questions of every skeptic. simply wanted to take a minute to say 
Skepticism is not as cut and dried as it often seems. And I wanted to say, if you assume that it's not consistent for someone to value science and history and affirm the truthfulness of miracles in Scripture, you need to stop assuming that. There's no inconsistency or incompatibility in those things. To be a good scientist, a good historian, you have to believe that there's something bigger than science and history. That's, that's all I'm saying. Now, we'll keep coming back to that. I'm putting together a list of, of uh, things that you might want to read, some resources that talk about miracles. And um, so stay tuned for that. Those are some of the things that could go wrong as we approach this part of Scripture. Let's listen to Scripture, though, and, and the way it answers this question, what has gone wrong? What's gone wrong in our world? If, if Jesus calls us to respond to him, who he is and what he does, and part of that response is that we want to care for each other in times of need, well, we, we see here in this part of Scripture that we live in a world where there are a lot of needs. A lot of needs, and every person experiencing them can do nothing to help themselves. So we start with this man named Aeneas. He's been paralyzed for eight years and unable to walk. Do you think in eight years, if he could have done something to heal himself, he would have done it? He's a man who has a tremendous need and he can't do anything to relieve it himself. We meet widows. These widows are impoverished. How do we know they're impoverished? Well, they stand in this room grieving the death of this woman named Tabitha and showing everyone the garments that she made for them. And pay attention to this detail. They show their tunics. That's the inner garment, what we call underwear, the thing that lives closest to your skin. She made those for them and other garments, the outer garments. These are people who are too, afford to, too poor to afford to buy any layer of clothing. These are people who, after the death of their husband, are so cut off from society, kind of pushed to the margins, that, that they can't meet their own needs. Someone else has to step in. We hear about these Christians in Joppa. Right, Peter goes there, and he goes into this room, upper room above the house, and the widows are standing there weeping. It's not just widows. The very next verse, verse 40, says, Peter put them all outside. The word all is masculine in Greek. It's a way of referring to a mixed group, a group of mixed gender. So don't have in your mind this picture of a room with lots of widows standing around crying. Picture men and women Some widows, some not. Young and old, everyone heartbroken because they've lost a close friend. They're in need. They need comfort. They need healing in their broken hearts, and they cannot heal their own hearts. We also meet this woman named Tabitha. She grew ill. We need to be cared for when we're sick. And she died. None of us can fix that. She's not the only person who experiences this breakdown in body, this disintegration when soul and body come apart. We need life. We need healing. We can't heal ourselves. We can't turn back death. And this little hint at the end of the passage, Peter goes to stay with a guy named Simon. And what does he do for a living? He's a tanner. 
That means he turns animal skins into leather. This was one of the most hated, despised professions in the ancient world. Uh, People who do this work, they stink all the time. The chemicals used in this process make them smell. And they're constantly unclean according to biblical law because they're constantly touching the skins of dead things. So they are the outcasts. And when you're on the outside looking in, what can you do about it? Nothing. You see why we say that Jesus doesn't call us to be nice because it's nice to be nice? There is far more at stake here than just be nice. We live in a world where people around us are hurting all the time and there's nothing they can do to care for their own needs. The reason Jesus calls us to step into that is because so much is at stake. So we're going to move on to our next question. If that's what's going wrong in our world, what can be done to put it right? Now here's the danger. We could too quickly rush past and ask this question, what can we do to put it right? Glad you asked. We'll talk about that in a moment. But let's not miss the most important character in the story. Right? When the Apostle Peter goes into this town called Lydda, and he finds a man named Aeneas, The first thing he says to him is not, Aeneas, I got you, man. I'm pretty awesome. Have you heard? I'm an apostle. And I'm a kind of practical guy, too. I used to be a fisherman. So I got you covered on either, you know, I can be your theologian, spiritual guy, and I can be your, I can catch your breakfast. I'm pretty cool. Have you heard? It's not what he says. He says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Aeneas, the world is broken, and Jesus came into the world to fix it. Aeneas, something was so far gone with our world that we couldn't do anything about it, so Jesus came into our world to do what we could not do for ourselves. And Aeneas, what Jesus began to do while he was here with us, he is continuing to do now that he's enthroned in heaven. Don't miss the most important character in the story Jesus calls us to care for other people in times of need, to care for each other in the Christian community when we're having needs because that's his heart. Our duty to care for one another in times of need is not just a function of how nice we are. It's not a function of how much we feel like being kind to one another. It's a function of the heart of Jesus. Now, we have a role to play, but it's in response to who he is. You hear how Jesus is working through Peter, right? Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Let me help you hear this. Jesus is at work through Tabitha. How do we know that? Well, listen to the way that she's described here. She's described in verse 36 as a a female disciple. She was full of good works. And acts of charity, or another way to translate that is mercy. She was full of good works. Why does that matter? 
That's exactly the way Jesus described himself in Luke chapter 6. He's about to heal a paralyzed man, a man whose hand is crippled. And some people don't want him to do it. And so he says, hey, is it okay if I do good works on the Sabbath? In other words, my miracles that I do, they're good works. Jesus says, the things I do to care for people in need are good works. And in the next chapter of the book of Acts, Peter stands up to preach and he says, you know about Jesus. And the way he describes Jesus, he says, Jesus is one who traveled around doing good. So the very things that Jesus said he did, good works, the very way that Peter captures the ministry of Jesus, he traveled around doing good, that same vocabulary is used to describe this woman. She was a woman who did good works. She is extending the heartbeat of Jesus into her community. She is loving the people that Jesus would be caring for if he were here. We're going to unpack that just a little bit more in terms of what it means for us responding. Right? How can this broken world be put right again through the work of Jesus? And he will use us to accomplish that. So, so part of our response to his goodness is asking Jesus, what does it mean for us to care for one another in times of need? So one thing I want to say is that we care extensively. A miracle is an intensive way of caring for someone. Right here, right now, all the power, all the energy you need to heal you, I will do it. Jesus did that all the time. Right here, right now, all the food we need to feed 5,000 people, I will do it. Nobody has to go to the grocery store. Nobody has to go catch more fish. Nobody has to more, grow more wheat and process it and let's bake some bread. I will multiply it right here, right now, all the power, all the energy, all the resources in this moment. That's what a miracle is. What would have gone wrong if Tabitha had said, too bad for you widows because I can't do miracles? She didn't care for them intensively. Her care extended over time. Her care extended to all the menial chores of going out and buying the thread, buying the needles, tracking down the cloth, heart, uh, haggling in the marketplace for the best price on the fabric, sitting by lamplight at night, stitching by hand. Now, a miracle? The clothes sew themselves. Intense. But don't think that just because you can't work miracles... You're not called to care for people the way that Jesus did. Here's a woman who can't work miracles, but she's described in exactly the same vocabulary that's used to describe Jesus himself. She is full of good works. It takes her longer to get them done than it would him or Peter, an apostle. Her calling is not to be the Messiah. Her calling is not to be an apostle, miracle worker. Her calling is to be a Christian. A disciple of Jesus, seeing the needs of those around her. And here's where we learn one more thing about caring for one another in times of need. We care locally. 
what would have gone wrong if Tabitha had said, there's no point making clothes for these widows because I can't clothe all widows. I can't solve the whole problem of poverty, so forget it. Her calling is not to solve the whole problem. Her calling is not to care for the whole world at once. Her calling is meet the needs of these people that God has brought into your path. Who's, who's in your community? Do they have a need? Meet it. Guess what? People who aren't in your community will see that happening and be drawn to it. Notice that tendency in this part of the book of Acts. So here's how I would capture that. Just two phrases. Nobody can do everything, but everybody can do something. That's how we care for each other in times of need. I I don't get paralyzed by standing up here and going, there are hundreds of people in this room and there's no way I can personally care for every need of every person at this moment. Nobody's big enough to do everything, but everybody can do something. So we ask the question, who's having a need that I know about? And how would Jesus call me in response to his goodness to meet those needs? So, why do we want to do this? Because it's nice? No. We want to get better at taking care of each other when we have needs of all kinds. Because Jesus really has come into our world and he really does have a heart to care for people who are in need. And he really can use us to keep doing the kind of good that he did while he was in this world. And we will do it and do it and do it. And the needs will never run out until he comes again. And he restores all things. And all the dead rise. And all the grief is healed. And all the widows are clothed. And in his name, we keep caring for one another until he comes because he came for us first. Let's take a moment and pray. Lord Jesus, you did not sew clothing for us. We weren't there when you broke the loaves and the fishes and fed 5,000 people. I have never eaten a bite of fish that came from your hand. We did not directly experience all of these miracles. But we are reminded today that you came and you lived and you died and you rose again for us. And because we're so good at forgetting that, you give us the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to remind us as often as we eat and drink of who you are and what you have done for us. And this is both our call to serve and love one another and care for one another when we are in need. It is our reminder that you cared for us in ways that we could never care for ourselves. And it is also our pardon when we confess that we have not cared for each other as we ought. 
And all those things are happening at once because you are a glorious Savior who meets every one of our needs. And we bring ourselves to you now to honor and worship you as we receive this sacrament which you taught us to celebrate. We pray in your name. Amen.